A warning to our listeners. This episode contains descriptions of violence. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. On a foggy night in 1860, a boat carried a weary traveler to the waterfront of Naples, Italy. The man had come a long way. He was hoping to experience what he'd been told was a cosmopolitan and cultured city. But as he stepped onto the dock, an unexpected scene unfolded before him. He watched as a young man in an ostentatious outfit approached the captain of his boat and held out his hand. On the man's fingers, the traveler noticed gold rings glittering in the lamps of the waterfront. Then he watched as the captain placed a coin in the man's hand. Later that night, this ritual repeated itself. In quick succession, the traveler watched as two other men in similarly flashy garb demanded payment. First from his carriage driver, then from the porter who carried his bags to his hotel room. By the time the baffled traveler settled in for the night, he had witnessed a total of three bribes in ten minutes. In the following days, the traveler asked one of his Neapolitan friends about what he'd seen. What sort of power did those men in gaudy outfits have that they could just demand money? Who were they? The traveler's friend went silent, glancing around the small cafe. Then he took a second swig of his drink. Bolstered by this liquid courage, the friend quietly uttered one word. Camorra. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on the Camorra a criminal organization which originated in the prisons of Naples, Italy. In the mid-1800s, the Camorra wielded an incredible amount of power. Even today, their fingerprint remains on Italian politics, as well as organized crime around the world. This week, we'll piece together the origins and initiation rituals of the Camorra. We'll also explore the group's role in Neapolitan history and learn how they exploited a monarchy to their personal advantage. Next week, we'll follow the events that led to the Camorra's demise. We'll also cover what happened when the last members of the group came to the United States. We have all that and more coming up. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. 
carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. At the end of the 1700s, Italy as we know it did not exist. The peninsula was a patchwork of different city-states, rival kingdoms, and tiny republics. However, its decentralized organization wouldn't last long. Napoleon Bonaparte's armies were on the march, and by the 1790s, much of northern Italy was unified under his control. In 1804, Napoleon crowned himself King of Italy. Despite this early victory, Napoleon's reign soon fizzled out. By the end of 1814, neither he nor any of his allies remained in Italy, but they did leave something behind, the ideals of the French Revolution. Liberty, equality, fraternity. These values were decidedly not embraced by the ruling elite of Italy. The southern region of modern-day Italy, centered on Naples, was entirely controlled by the House of Bourbon. They were a European royal family with a bloodline that spanned centuries and traced back to the French king Louis IX. Other than a brief interruption during Napoleon's occupation, the regime had been in control since 1734, and with that control came power. The Bourbons ruled over millions of unhappy people. But though they had managed to beat back Napoleon, the monarchy wasn't as successful at extinguishing the ideas he left behind. Inspired by the French Revolution, citizens cried out for a unified Italy that was led by Italians, instead of royal houses from elsewhere in Europe. These would-be revolutionaries came from every walk of life, but together they considered themselves Italian patriots. Following Napoleon's defeat, they began plotting what an Italian republic could look like. Then, in 1848, these politically motivated citizens began a series of demonstrations in support of a representative republic, which is when the regime cracked down. From 1848 to 1849, the Bourbons jailed any purported agitators, and inside those dark dungeons, gangs were king. This was no accident. Italian prisons had long been run by organized groups of criminals. The Bourbon regime allowed these hierarchies to exist because it was just easier. Instead of spending money on guards and wardens, it was far simpler and cheaper for the Bourbons to let prisoners police themselves. Though this experiment was clearly dangerous, its benefits were seductive. The Bourbons figured that they could hoard even more of their wealth, while simultaneously saving themselves the trouble of prison administration. As for the jailhouse gangs, they were more than happy to oblige. From the moment a prisoner entered their new home, they took over. The gangs decided everything, when a prisoner ate, what they ate, and even where they slept. 
More importantly, the gang dictated how much these essential activities would cost. This was the beauty of the gangs. Their dominance over prison life allowed them to extort people at will. However, it wasn't all misery and extortion. Prison gangs also organized recreational activities. In fact, some researchers have noted that the word Camorra could have its origin in a gambling game called Mora. Playing Mora was a privilege. In order to even participate, an inmate had to bribe the capo de la Mora, or the boss of the game. As the theory goes, the combination of capo and Mora resulted in the name Camorra. It's unclear whether this theory is accurate. Regardless, as far as the regime was concerned, prisons were boxes in which they could throw people without having to worry about them ever again. But the regime didn't seem to worry enough about what would eventually happen with their jailhouse gangs. From deep within the dungeon cells, a secret society had emerged. Like the boss of the game they played, its members called it the Camorra. Society members developed specific rituals and dress codes. This allowed them to stand out from non-affiliated inmates, just in time for a new crop of prisoners to arrive. A typical prisoner in the 1840s would have been an idealistic Italian patriot. Often, he was a young nobleman with high hopes for uniting his fatherland. This would have put him in the Bourbon's crosshairs. After his orchestrated arrest, this passionate patriot went to prison with a sense of duty, even pride. But his outlook shifted dramatically once the door shut behind him. The first thing this hypothetical patriot faced upon entering the prison was a large crescent-shaped razor, which was used to forcibly shave his head. Then he was handed a thin mattress filled with rags, a blanket made of donkey hair, and a wooden bowl. After all that, he was pushed through the final prison door, only to hear it lock behind him. On the other side, this nobleman found a filthy dungeon, a place rank with human waste. And instead of cells, he was met with a series of open rooms lined with jagged stones and small high-up windows. By this point, the Patriot would be terrified, wondering if his idealism had been worth such a depressing fate. It was at this point of self-doubt that a strange inmate would step forward. In stark contrast to the other prisoners, the man would be clad in fine clothes and jewelry. This silently communicated his esteemed status to the new prisoner. Out loud, the man in flashy clothes would introduce himself as one of the Camaristi, a member of the Camorra Society. With overwrought politeness, the Camarista told the new prisoner that he was now under the care of the Camorra. So if he wanted food, protection, or goods of any kind, he'd have to pay the Camorra for the privilege. It was as simple as that. Of course, it wasn't simple at all. After this introduction to prison life, the Patriot would realize he'd become part of a shadow economy. In order to survive, he would have to pay the Camorra a series of never-ending bribes. Not only that, it was clear to any new prisoner that the Camorra had more power than even the jailers. They were both the guards and administrators, an arrangement the Bourbon regime was happy with. However, it's important to note that despite all of this power, the Camaristi were still prisoners. They had sentences to fulfill. It was only when those terms concluded that they were freed from their cells and unleashed on the unwitting Italians outside. 
Around the year 1830, citizens of Naples started to notice the presence of the Camorra on their streets. It didn't happen overnight, but as Camoristi reached the end of their sentences and were freed, their ranks steadily grew. At the time, Naples was Europe's densest metropolis. As such, it was also racked with poverty. Many of the most destitute neighborhoods were composed almost entirely of tenements where multiple families crowded into windowless rooms. The conditions weren't much better on the streets. Much of the city's sewer system was built out of ancient, overflowing cesspits. Raw sewage ran down alleys, attracting vermin and making the lives of Naples' homeless poor miserable. In this way, Naples wasn't so different from the filthy jail cells the Camorra thrived in. And like the prison, the city had destitute people who could be exploited. This meant that upon being freed, the Camaristi looked at the poverty and misery of the Neapolitan masses and saw opportunity. Up next, the Camorra become one of the most powerful forces in all of Naples. Hi, it's Greg. If you're looking to add some more fun to your feed, subscribe to Parcast Network's new show, Incredible Feats. Every weekday, comedian Dan Cummins, who you might recognize from the hit podcast Time Suck, explores an unbelievable account of physical strength, mental focus, or bizarre behavior. Don't miss the story of the man who broke the sound barrier while skydiving from the edge of space, or the harrowing tale of a 17-year-old girl who survived alone in a rainforest for 11 days after her plane broke apart mid-air, or the ultra-marathoner whose rare genetic condition lets him run for days without stopping. Incredible Feet spotlights mind-blowing achievements of everyone from world-class athletes and record breakers to scientists, architects, artists, and more. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. In the 19th century, the Camorra was born in the dungeons of the Bourbon regime. There they mingled with political prisoners and hardened criminals. However, their power soon outstripped the small confines of the dungeons. So upon release, they took control of the city above. In 1835, if a Neapolitan citizen was walking down a gloomy alley in the middle of the night and heard the crow of a rooster, he would be smart to run. After their emergence from prison, the Camorra began to use animal sounds to communicate with one another. For example, if a Camorista noticed some approaching police officers while his companions were shaking down a pedestrian nearby, he would meow like a cat. This gambit was so common that evenings in Naples could be a chorus of animal sounds on the streets, followed by the muffled screams of robbery victims. Far from being alarmed, most citizens took it in stride. They didn't expect the ineffective Neapolitan police to help. And they knew that the Bourbon regime was too preoccupied with locking up political dissidents to care what happened in the slums. This power vacuum meant that by the 1850s, just a few decades after its members began emerging from prison, the Camorra had total control of the Neapolitan underworld. 
From this position of dominance, the Camorra began demanding taxes from the city's career criminals. They collected payment on illicit activities, spanning from the illegal weapons trade to sex workers. As the Camorra grew in strength and wealth, they turned their finely honed racketeering skills toward the law-abiding side of the Neapolitan economy. And soon, at the port, the central market, and even the gates of the city itself, the Camorra were there, demanding their cut from nearly every legal enterprise. Shakedowns sufficed for the middle class. But the Camorra were smart enough to realize they'd have to take a softer approach when it came to Naples' elite. To that end, the group developed a mutually beneficial quid pro quo relationship with the city's upper class. From Bourbon princes to the clergy, no one was above taking Camorra bribes or even paying the society to do their dirty work. However, the Camorra didn't allow just any random member of their society to deal with the elite. On the contrary, the secret society had a highly hierarchical class system. Swell mobsmen sat at the top of the Camorra hierarchy. Smartly dressed and well-connected, these Camoristi were tasked with managing the quid pro quo relationship between the gang and Naples' elite. Below the swell mobsmen were the Camorra's so-called middle class. These members were tasked with extorting shop owners, laborers, and petty criminals. They operated in broad daylight rather than in the halls of the city's esteemed opera. As for the bottom rung of the Camorra, they prowled Naples' alleys. Acting as murderers and thieves, these members carried out the group's brand of justice on demand. It was at this bloody bottom rung that most new members of the society started. Allegedly, one of the Camorra's initiation ceremonies involved a simple but brutal test. In order to become a society member, an initiate was told that they had to murder a person who had been hand-picked by the group. Though this offer was presented as a choice, it wasn't. The prospective initiate knew that if they refused to commit the requested murder, a more amenable initiate might be asked to kill them. It was literally an offer they couldn't refuse. Unsurprisingly, very few initiates even tried. Once they'd completed their crime, they were considered full-fledged Camoristi, no further induction required. However, there was another, more involved Camorra initiation ritual, one that lasted for years. It's a hot day in Naples when you taste freedom. You've spent the last half decade as a prisoner of the Bourbon regime. The dungeons were squalid and violent, but you survived your sentence. You even made a few friends along the way. One of them was a Camarista. When you emerge from prison, you see him waiting near the gates, his rings flashing in the sun. He slaps you on the back and presses a coin into your hand. Then he says, you've earned it. Tamuro. Tamuro isn't your name, but you've heard that word before. It's the term experienced members of the Camorra use to describe initiates. With a rush, you realize your friend has ushered you into the first stage of becoming a full-fledged Camorista. Over the next few months, he takes you under his wing and orders you to commit small crimes with other Tamuro. At his prompting, you pickpocket travelers on the waterfront, steal from drunks in bars, and shake down vendors in the market. An entire year passes like this. You wonder what the future holds. You wonder if you're just going to perform petty crimes for the rest of your life. 
Then one day, your friend tells you that the time has come. You are finally ready for the next stage of the initiation process. That night, your friend ushers you into a restaurant. He brings you down the creaky stairs in the back and down into the basement. There, you find a dozen well-dressed camaristi, all of them sporting ostentatious jewelry and terrifying scars. In the middle of the stone floor, you notice a single coin. It almost looks like the one your friend gave you upon your release from prison. But before you can ask what the coin is for, the men in the room draw knives. One of the knife-wielding camaristi tells you to look at the coin sitting on the ground. Once you comply, he says that on his signal, you have to grab the coin. You're relieved. Is that all? Just lean over and pick up the coin? But as the Camarista continues talking, you are filled with horror. It's not going to be so easy. He tells you that the other Camaristi are going to kneel on the ground around the coin. Then, while you try and grab the money, they're going to continuously thrust their razor-sharp knives at it. Instantly, you know you're going to get stabbed in the hand. There's no way to pick up the coin otherwise. If you want to be a Camarista, you'll have to endure their blades. How much you get stabbed is the only thing in your control. You'll have to be brave, and you'll have to be fast. As though on cue, all the Camaristi kneel around the coin, their knives glinting in the dim candlelight. Then they start to thrust their blades at the money. It's like the mouth of some terrible animal with gnashing teeth, and you have to reach into it. You wait for your opening. Then you dart your hand toward the coin. You pull your hand out, blood runs down your arm, and you can feel a searing pain from multiple stab wounds. But the coin is clutched in your bleeding fingers. At the sight of it, the gathered Camaristi cheer. They pour alcohol over your wounds, the pain of which almost makes you faint. Fortunately, your compatriots are there to catch you. They prop you up, pat you on the back, and wrap your hand. Just as you're starting to relax, your friend leans in and tells you that there is still one more step. He calls it the ceremony of reception. As if by silent consensus, all of the members in the room usher you to a room upstairs. There you find a table with four things on it. A glass of wine, a dagger, a small medical knife, and a gun. Your friend tells you that the pistol is loaded and the glass of wine is poisoned. Then he instructs you to hold out your left arm and cut it with the dagger. You do so without hesitation, gritting your teeth and bearing the pain. Your brothers are impressed. All around you, you can hear them muttering about your bravery. Next, the gathered men tell you to dip your fingers in the blood flowing from your arm and hold it out. You do so, your fingers glinting red in the candlelight. At the sight of your bloodied hand, they ask you to pledge that you won't tell anyone about the activities of the order. Eager, you make the promise. You'll hold your tongue. You'll keep their secrets. But your brothers aren't finished. They ask you to pledge that you'll always obey any order you're given, no matter what. At this, your outstretched hand trembles, but instinctively, you know there's no going back, so you promise to obey their every word. The Camarista who brought you nods in approval. He tells you to stick the dagger into the table. 
After you do so, he instructs you to cock the pistol and set it down again. You do this too, leaving the gun cocked and ready to fire. Next, they tell you to hold the poison glass of wine to your lips. You have to show that you're willing to die for the Kamara. You grip the glass of wine, now slick with blood, and bring it to your mouth. Then, the Kamarista who brought you orders that you kneel in front of the dagger you stabbed into the table. Then, he places his hand on your head. You watch him pick up the cocked pistol, and suddenly you're terrified. You wonder if you did something wrong, and whether they'll kill you for your transgression. You think about your family. You haven't spoken to them much since you got out of prison. You wish you had done everything differently. You blink as the flare from the gunshot lights up the restaurant. He'd aimed the gun upwards, shooting through the ceiling. You are alive. Before you can process this, the Camarista shouts at you to smash the glass of poisoned wine. Relief floods through you as you comply. You've done it. You've proven your worthiness. In recognition, your friend pulls the dagger from the table and presents it to you. He tells you that it's yours now. Then he tugs you to your feet and wraps you in a hug. One by one, the other Camaristi embrace you as well. Your friend grins at you and says, Welcome to the Camorra. We have a lot of work to do together. Up next, the Camorra elevate their status in Naples to improbable heights. Now back to the story. By the 1850s, the Camorra controlled the Neapolitan underground. They used their growing ranks to infiltrate every layer of society, giving them a comprehensive understanding of the political winds in Naples. This meant that by 1860, the Camorra had unique insight into the city's frustrated middle and lower classes. It wasn't long before the leaders of the society began wondering whether they could exploit that discontent. But before the Camorra could act, someone else beat them to the punch. Giuseppe Garibaldi, an Italian patriot, led a small volunteer army of 1,000 men to successfully capture Sicily and Palermo. Afterwards, General Garibaldi turned his sights to the north. He used his sudden fame to preach about his desire to unify the Italian peninsula. Neapolitans greeted the prospect of a new republic with joy. Naturally, the Bourbon regime felt very differently. At the time, King Francesco II of the Bourbons was 24 years old. Having ascended to the throne only a year earlier, he was woefully inexperienced. So as commotion rose on the streets of Naples in 1860, Francesco sat in his throne room, insecure and fretting endlessly over what path to take. All the while, his royal court grew more and more impatient, desperate for him to either jail the pro-Garibaldi demonstrators or cut a deal with them. The Camorra observed all of this from the shadows. Their leaders likely believed that if they could harness the power of the angry, pro-Garibaldi Neapolitans, they could remake the city exactly how they wanted. Before they could put any plans in play, however, the Bourbons announced their decision. On June 26, 1860, they stated that they would be ending their own monarchy. Kind of. Their plan was called the Sovereign Act. It established a constitution and a parliament while keeping King Francesco as the leader of the country. 
However, he would concede to freeing political prisoners from the Bourbon regime's dungeons. Many in Naples couldn't believe it. They were so used to oppression from the regime that this gesture toward democratic policies seemed like some sort of trick. But it wasn't. The Bourbons could see the writing on the wall. They knew that after Garibaldi's successful invasion of Sicily, he would soon be marching on Naples. This reorganization was their way to get ahead of this problem. Unfortunately for them, it wasn't enough. Garibaldi's supporters insisted that a parliament and a constitution were meaningless if a Bourbon king was still in charge of the country. Then, before Garibaldi even stepped foot into Naples, his admirers began storming the city. As the chaos rose, merchants closed up their stores and the city shut down. Amongst the boarded-up storefronts, Garibaldi loyalists exchanged gunfire with Italians who supported the Bourbon regime. The Neapolitan police force, who for decades had been seen as a tool of the regime, were mocked as powerless, while street battles surged about them. The chaos was the spark the Camorra needed. Working in disguise, Camoristi made secret alliances with freed political prisoners. Then they helped them attack police officers and ransack their stations. Due in part to the Camorra's formidable efforts, Naples' entire police force abandoned their posts, leaving the city to the mobs. In their absence, Naples descended into absolute pandemonium. The disguised Camorra looked on as the city's police stations were ransacked by rioters armed with rifles, daggers, and other weapons. They watched as documents and furniture were thrown out of station windows and burned in the street. By nightfall, Naples didn't have a single standing police station. Rather than reacting with terror, Neapolitan citizens celebrated the bonfires. They danced and sang. Children even cut up police uniforms into colorful streamers. As for the Camorra, their plan couldn't have gone better. Not only were they able to keep their involvement a secret, but due to their covert efforts, Naples had no lawmen. Thus, the city was theirs for the taking. But a surprise was in store one that not even the well-connected society could have foreseen. A couple of days after the riots, a man in his 60s named Liborio Romano was pacing the royal palace grounds. King Francesco had just tasked Romano with replacing the non-existent Neapolitan police, and Romano had no idea what to do. His ascent to this unenviable position had been a strange one. In the early 1850s, Romano had been a prisoner of the regime after his patriotism got him thrown into one of their notorious dungeons. Fortunately, since he was an older person with health issues, the regime released Romano after only two years. Since then, Romano signed an oath of loyalty and had worked to bolster his reputation. His hard work led him to being installed in King Francesco's cabinet. Now, faced with the impossible task of replacing Naples' police force, Romano thought back to his days in the dungeon. Things had been simpler then. Suddenly, a strange idea struck him. He smiled, wondering whether he dared to see it carried out. A few hours after Romano's epiphany, Salvatore de Crescenzo, one of the three highest-ranking Camorra bosses in Naples, was having a bath. He'd spent the prior night drinking with his fellow Camoristi in a restaurant he'd forced the owner at knife point to keep open. 
De Crescenzo was heavily scarred, his body a map of the violent years he'd spent rising through the Camorra's ranks. Now, as he soaked off the grime from the night before, he might have speculated about how the Camorra would plunder Naples in the absence of police. At that moment, anything felt possible. De Crescenzo startled as one of his subordinates rapped on the door. He grumbled as his assistant, a young Tamuro, poked his head in. The Camorista apologized for disturbing his leader, but he'd gotten some important news. De Crescenzo and his two fellow bosses were wanted at the royal palace at once. A couple of hours later, De Crescenzo sat in a huge Baroque meeting room. The other bosses of the Camorra were there with him. In their loud clothes and twinkling jewelry, they all looked wildly out of place. Across from them was Liborio Romano. Statesmanlike and subdued in dress, he was the only one who looked completely at home. As the curious Camoristi listened, Romano told them that he was well acquainted with their group from his time in prison. He explained that he emerged from that experience with the awareness that they were capable of great depravity, but also capable, he hoped, of redeeming themselves. De Crescenzo started to laugh. He asked Romano to tell him what redemption he could possibly offer that the Camorra couldn't take for themselves. Romano smiled. Then he made his proposal. He told the bosses that there was no better way to rehabilitate the Camorra society than to give them a job as the city's police. The Camoristi were dumbstruck, but in reality, Romano's proposal wasn't that novel. The Bourbon regime had relied on the Camorra to control the prisons for years. It wasn't such a huge leap for the organization to transcend this role, becoming productive, lawful members of society in the process, at least as far as Romano was concerned. Without speaking, the Camaristi in attendance understood that they'd been given an amazing opportunity. Romano was unwittingly asking them to replace the police force they had helped overthrow. It was perfect. Barely able to contain their glee, they agreed to Romano's idea on the spot. For the rest of the summer, as the heat in Naples soared, the Camorra embraced their new roles as cops. Having once exacerbated the city's chaos, the secret society was able to put a swift end to it. Word spread across Italy of the criminal organization's sudden and total redemption. Instead of revealing the ruse, the Italian press was similarly taken in, publishing grandiose illustrations of the three bosses in the papers. However, it became apparent that peace in Naples would be short-lived. General Garibaldi and his volunteer army were making steady progress through southern Italy. As for the citizens of Naples, the threat of Camorra retaliation was enough to keep them peaceful. However, there were small signs of rebellion. This made it clear that Neapolitans would rather embrace the unknown but united future Garibaldi promised rather than continue bowing to a Bourbon king. On September 6, 1860, the palace caught wind that General Garibaldi and his men were a few miles away from Naples. King Francesco and his family prepared to flee the city. They piled into carriages and left the palace grounds with guards armed to the teeth. They were prepared to fight their way out of Naples if need be. 
Yet despite their preparations, the royal family apparently encountered no one. It was just another hot day on the plains outside of Naples. Thus, the Bourbon regime ended, not with a bang, but a whimper. The next day, Garibaldi entered the city with a few of his staff. There was no need for an army. As he stepped from his coach onto the platform, the general was greeted by a massive crowd. They serenaded him with chants of, Viva Garibaldi! It's possible that Camorra policemen watched from within the crowd as well, plotting to turn yet another political circumstance to their advantage. Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back Thursday with part two, where we detail the long and strange decline of the Camorra after Italy's unification. For more information on the Camorra, amongst the many sources we used, we found Blood Brotherhoods, A History of Italy's Three Mafias by John Dickey, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Secret Societies for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Nicholas Zwart, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Remember to follow incredible feats for mind-reeling stories of strength, focus, and achievement. Comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins hosts, bringing his signature humor to these extreme accounts. You might be glad you've never lived these stories, but you'll love hearing them. Subscribe to Incredible Feats free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.